Hello, friends, and welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Courtney Staples. On today's episode, we are continuing our four-part foray into the world under the veil of rains. Unlike regular episodes, this is uh, one for us where we basically get to make a four-part series, go in-depth, and uh, explore something without a prompt from you, our listeners, which is unusual. So if this is your first time listening, I would strongly recommend going back to part one of this particular series and listening there. And if you feel like shipping us your own prompt, you can always do that by going to our website, worldbuildwithus.com, where you can click the link, follow some instructions, and within a reasonable amount of time, we'll be building your world. If you want to follow us on social media, you can go to our YouTube, where you can like and subscribe and all that stuff. Hell, you might be listening to us right there, right now. You can also go to our Twitter and follow us there at Let's World Build. Or if you'd rather talk to us more directly, you can go to our Discord, where we've got all sorts of fun stuff going on there, conversations and whatnot. And finally, if you're feeling particularly generous, you can always give us money over on Patreon, where you get access to sweet, sweet patron-only goodies like too hot for broadcast or two episodes for each prompt that you send in among other great benefits. So go over to our Patreon, say thank you in the form of a Patreon subscription. And with all of the shilling out of the way, we can dive right back into it. Now, last we left off, we had created a circle of arch druids who were holding the worlds together as they calcified again, Strongly recommend going back and listening to that first episode. And where we start now is getting to know some of those druids and their familiars just a little bit more. Now, if I recall, Daniel started us off last time. So, Courtney, why don't you start us off this time? Who is your druid? What do they look like? What do they do? Tell us the deal. All right. Well, I didn't give her a name yet. Um, so oh, I didn't. Oh, I didn't know okay. we were doing names. Dear God. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. no I, Okay, yeah, we don't we don't need to deal with names. That's fine. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the one that I had in mind, I wanted to go with a crow familiar for my mm -hmm. druid. So I'm picturing my druid as kind of fae-like, very light on her feet, wearing like a cloak of black feathers and a mask of feathers too, and kind of embodying the the spirit of her familiar with like investigation skills and specializing in seeking things out um also collecting since crows are known for grabbing shiny things and tucking them away um and even creating art of sorts i think she would do and in general a, a curious uh problem solver very sociable as well as crows tend to be mm. very gossipy and oriented towards groups and friends and gatherings and sharing of of stories and knowledge and all of that so i think that yeah the people that she would sort of rule over would would take on some of those traits too and like an open sharing attitude would be the norm there interesting i i like that we both went with sociable type folks this time but mm -hmm. uh did i miss it or did you explain what their familiar's powers were Oh, no, I didn't explain that fully. Uh, so uh, I, I did want to workshop that a bit more with you guys. Um, I think that it would definitely make sense for like a wind-based power, like mm -hmm. kind of flapping of the wings would stir up the wind. Probably nothing too intense, like she's not going to be making tornadoes, but, you know, gusts of wind certainly. Mm. And then I think also some of that investigation, like seeking out of things, finding things would be part of her power and part mm. of the familiar's power like being able to hone in on something from far off mm. yeah I'm, I'm thinking that you know in a, in a world like you're you're effectively pathfinder people right like you're wanting to go and seek out something and a good way to do that is to like oh there's a cloud in the way or there's fog or a mist well we can gently blow a breeze and kind of you know like separate that you know you're revealing things about the world and you can also um help people in the form of you know if you're doing like sailing or shipwrights or something like that mm -hmm. you can add a little gust to the sail in that way as well yeah definitely and um i didn't want 
her or her familiar or her people to be like very scout-like because I know that I've made a lot of scout-type factions in the past. So I think this one I wanted to be more, um, not so much pathfindery in terms of exploring new areas or uh, finding routes, but more so like seeking out lost things or doing like smaller ventures, mm. I guess. That stands out to me when you said that the, because um, the crows collect things for, you know, for people they like. Mm-hmm. And then you mentioned kind of, I think you said either collective or community aspect to it. So I could see mm-hmm. some place that these crows are sent from that bring things back to this place. And it's part of either some cultural thing or perhaps like they're literally bringing things back that are physically possible for crows to bring. Um, thereby giving that place some special either significance or power or, or advantage. Oh, interesting. What kind of like odd things are you picturing? I'm thinking like you said you didn't want them to be like scouts or people that wander out. So perhaps these are like more persistent communities. Like we were talking about mm-hmm. um, the veils hiding certain places that are only available at certain times. Maybe it's something like yeah. that. But I could see like um, the crows bringing back like the idea of a thing. So maybe like they go out and they bring back prosperity for a year oh. and it's represented as some token. And now the town has that prosperity for mm-hmm. however long. Oh, I like that a lot. Yeah. Especially with how like vocal crows are. I could see them mm-hmm. like basically telling the story of this idea oh, to this yeah. community that That's sort of cool. enlightens them for a period of time. Yeah. The idea that they're bards is actually really interesting, especially because crows often take on a somber, dour tone. But the idea mm-hmm. that, you know, the crow feathered bards of this particular people are, you know, they're hope bringers and storytellers. That's actually super interesting. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's fun. Yeah, that's that's super cool. So so again, like I'm assuming that we're keeping our powers weather related in some way, or at least element related in some way. So are we mm-hmm. still keeping to the idea like that there's a, a a wind at their back at all times, or is there something else that we can kind of reconnoiter here? Yeah, I liked um I do still like the wind power as part of it, but I guess along the lines of what Daniel suggested, there could also be like ideas being carried on those winds. Ooh, their voices carry on the winds. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know we kind of just did that in a, in a setting recently, the prog rock one with the Mm -hmm. uh, wind carrying the ideas, but I think this would be like a more, um, not sure how to explain it. Yeah. I think that it's, it takes on a completely different meaning and a completely different, setting like it's it's kind of like a fireball can exist in multiple places at once yeah like this this has a very different connotation than what we're talking about in in the prog rock setting i mean yeah yeah i feel like this is a bit lighter whereas the prog rock one was very like religious and spiritual and exactly more serious i mean if you're trying to deal with the question of how it relates to the weather like you could just say something like um the secrets of these places that they take you know, uh, concepts from like the songs or whatever are carried by the storms. And mm-hmm. so they are able to fly into those storms and retrieve them. Yeah. Like, so power to withstand mm-hmm. like high winds and stuff like that. Yeah. Like they're used to being a drifter, just like the stuff they collect, like it's out there. Yeah. In the world, you know, mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm imagining that the the people in general, you said that they're community oriented, but to me, it, it also feels as like they're kind of scattered to the winds a little bit mm-hmm. as well. Do you see that as well? Or yeah, yeah. Now that we're talking more about it, I could see that like picturing like small bands of them traveling around in a more nomadic fashion, and then maybe once a year or a couple times a year getting together as like a big communal family party sort of thing. Sure, sure. So I did have a question. So we talked about um, there being tokens of because it's we know that these creatures don't actually exist, or at least in the capacity we understand. So like, there's these bones or these things left over, right? That represent mm-hmm. the tokens of them. So yeah. what is the objects that people collect to have the power of them? Yeah, I think it would be the crow feathers. Oh, it's the feathers. Okay, yeah, Interesting. that's what I'm picturing. Uh, see, my interpretation of that kind of idea was each part represented a different ability or each part oh, represented a different aspect. So mm-hmm. crow feathers absolutely work, but I'm also thinking that, you know, 
crow feet or crow skull or something like that could also all have different variations on the same kind of theme of power that we're dealing with here. I gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, the feather certainly for the the wind oriented stuff. Um, yeah. The skull could be that sort of seeking, finding, right, communication right. type of power. Mm. Um, and then the the talons themselves, they're for like snatching something that is otherwise not able to be snatched or something like that, you know? Yeah. And, and I mean, the way that you can kind of get around that is like, you don't have to have just a singular familiar. It could have been a flock of, of crows that this druid had. And so each of them have mm-hmm. this kind of, yeah, and, and actually I think that that's, that could be indicative of how like a, a power level type system could work because it's like, Oh, we only had one familiar. And so each of those pieces are like hypercharged compared to a flock of like mm-hmm. crows or something like that. And, and I'm not just saying that that's how we have to go, but I can imagine that that could work in a system like this. Yeah. Yeah. I was picturing the Druid as having had a flock with her. Um, oh yeah. yeah. Which she could like, manipulate in terms of shape to like form other larger things like if of course yeah she was fighting some colossal beast like have the crows form into a similarly large entity to fight this thing mm-hmm. and like peck at it with a thousand different beaks and so on yeah i kind of had the idea of like a giant spear when you said that mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. piercing the beast through you know multiple pecks or something like that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. sure um, we had also discussed like their own powers being scattered to the wind when these druids uh, sort of sacrificed themselves. So if we're sticking with that idea, um, obviously like the wind portion is part of it, but I could also see storm clouds occasionally showing up that rain trinkets down on mm. people that oh, have been, like, picked oh, up that's from super, around. Yeah. yeah, and that's indicative of like a relic that's been lost. It's like oh we've got to go find that because that's a, that's an omen of this particular relic that's around. Yeah. Or like the magical power has been sort of spread into the world itself. And that's, that's how it uh, perpetuates. Okay. Gotcha. We talk in more depth though, about what these people are like, because I think part of the things we wanted to accomplish with the druids is understand the landscape of the kind of mundane world. Yeah. What would a community of these people look like? What would they act like? Like, take us through one of these crow communities. Yeah, um, picturing like a kind of multi-layered treehouse type setup with different huts built into the trees. And even though they have their own separate huts or nests, if you will, like they're all very chatty amongst each other. Everybody kind of knows what's going on with everybody else. Um, A certain amount of like gossip going on but also communal activities foraging scavenging and so on partying for sure especially if like visitors come i feel like they'd be very welcoming to them at least initially um, to gauge their behavior Mm -hmm. but i think they would also be a bit mischievous and prone to like tricks if uh, they aren't treated well by a community um, that they're traveling to um, I did like the idea that they would split off into groups and travel around, not so much as scouts, but as communicators and bards. And last time we talked about how there isn't any actual money or currency in this world. It's everything is done through like bartering or favors or that mm. sort of thing. So given that they are prone to like collecting stuff and also creating art, I think that these people would also be very effective at trading um, the sort of group that you would go to if you had some like obscure need for something and wanted to see if they had any in stock or if they'd be willing to keep an eye out for you to get some in the future. Um, The type of person who, you know, you lose something and you go to them to try to help find it. So like some level of investigation Mm. or I guess detective E type stuff. Mm. Okay. I I think that they're coming together for me a little bit. Mm. When you say like, mischief is part of their culture what do you what do you mean by that and what do you perceive as mischief like are they pranksters are they you know like what what is their deal courtney yeah um yeah i don't think they're like complete assholes going around like fucking with everybody but 
I think it's more like if you um, don't treat them well, they would be more inclined to, for example, borrow objects from you uh, or kind of replace your possessions with other less valuable ones. Uh, And also like the gossip, I think, would play a role in that because crows have really good memories and can communicate well amongst their species. I'm picturing the people here being the same way where they sort of record and keep track of the goings Mm. on and, you know, kind of make note to everybody like, oh, this person is great. Like they were really kind to me when I visited their town, treat them nicely versus, Mm. oh, this guy's a complete asshole. Like get all this stuff Mm. if you can, that sort of vibe. And then like the spreading of rumors too and communicating in that way. Yeah, the the one thing that we keep coming back to here is this idea that um that you know the story or the word is really important, right? Like when it comes mm-hmm. to mischief or gossip or stories or or having long memories, right? Like that's mm-hmm. something that I feel like is done through storytelling. So I'd imagine that oral storytelling here is going to be very important to this particular culture of crow folk. Yeah, and I think their art too plays a role in that. Um obviously not as like the oral storytelling, but as actual art objects, like using the types of things that they collect and scavenge to create art that sort of tells a story of, you know, maybe that adventure that they were on when they found that object and so on. Mm -hmm. I think I have more of a sense now of what they're like. They seem um, either like, like gypsy types or maybe, I don't know, like, travelers between realms um but that are bardic mm. yeah and i guess speaking of between realms i do wonder how they would interact with the concept of the underworld and now we talked last time about mm. like parts of the underworld becoming visible like visible and accessible depending on the weather mm-hmm. i mean i had an idea for the animals it involves uh their relationship to the other realm and i wonder mm-hmm. i can visual- i can visualize right now your people at some sort of caravan or something traveling between locations guided by like a cloud of the the crows, which would be kind mm-hmm. of cool. Like yeah. they, they they follow the path of these creatures sometimes. Uh, I know yeah. that it's, I know that it's only the, the bits of them that give them power, but I also wonder if like the animal, these things relate to also are reactive to the possession of the, of the objects. Like if you mm-hmm. have a, a mm-hmm. feather, does it attract actual crows who then, not are under your power, but are like influenced by it. Yeah. I like that idea a lot. That's really cool. Yeah. I could totally see like a a band of these people, like they've crafted a crow skull into a whistle of sorts that they can blow to like summon a flock to them that Mm. then guides them along or um, leads them towards a a treasure that they had buried previously or something like that. Mm. Yeah, no, this, this is all working. And, um, (sighs) the kind of animal that I've chosen for my totemic folk are also similarly. um, I don't know between you and I, Courtney, I feel like we have some, some very interesting similarities, Mm -hmm. but also I I perceive mine to be very different, but also like to to go back to yours. I do love the idea that you have like a beast master ability by carrying these kind of totems around and whatnot. Yeah. That is really cool to think about. Yeah. Um, if we're if we're ready to transition, I can start to tell you about my folks, if that's cool with y'all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So similar to Courtney, I really wanted to do something that was very communal. And when I was initially kind of conceiving some of the ideas that I could do, I was thinking like, oh, I want to do like the Night Lord, which is like a druid of like bats and caves and, you know, like maybe even fungus. But I'm going to fall back on something that I think is perhaps more fun for me, which I want to base my druid on the rivers and specifically otters, like freshwater otters in particular, because I just think that one, they're super adorable and they're also like extremely misunderstood a lot of the time. Like they can be pretty brutal creatures, like they're carnivores. And I think people don't understand that, but I want to get into the folks a little bit more. So uh, much like Courtney, my otter folk are extremely community oriented, but unlike Courtney, like they tend to stick together, right? Like they form, mm-hmm. uh, and this is, a, this is another thing that are adorable. Otter groups are called romps, 
or <laughs> families. Yeah, I know. I know. They're so cute. They're called romps. They're called romps, Daniel. Yeah. Aww. And in when they collect on um like the river and stuff like that, they're also known as rafts because they they like group together. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I can't help but think of like very Americana in this way where it's like Mark Twain, like they're raft people. They're like moving up and down like a system of riverways and stuff like that. And similarly to Courtney, I'm like, oh, riverways, like if we want to like stick with something like the river sticks, there's also this kind of death like harbinger to it. But that's not where mm-hmm. I'm going with this necessarily. But um, so, yeah, my folks are very rowdy, very playful. They are often guides to the rivers themselves, but not necessarily scouts because they're more about being like, hey, do you need to get across the river safely? Cool. We got you. No problem. Oh, hey, you need to ford the river. Don't worry. We got you. We'll we'll take you across on our little ferry rafts and boats and stuff like that. And do you want to stick around? We've got a party going on. Like, absolutely hang out with us. You know, very gregarious, very much like traveling folk, but also very much the kind who are like, I got to get back to my family. Sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I can only take you this far because any longer and I'd be away from my family for too long. You know, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, so when I was thinking about what they do in terms of like powers and stuff like that, I'm like, oh, it's, it's very simple. They are able to control the currents of rivers. Right. And, uh, as a result, like, man, that gives them a lot of mobility, you know, to be able to just reroute the, the, the rafts and and travel Mm -hmm. as easily as that they possibly can. So the riverways are effectively theirs, you know, like no, no ifs, ands or buts about it. Like they control the rivers pretty well. They're able to use that to their advantage in terms of like how it works economically and in terms of ecologically as well. They're able to eat quite well. They're able to uh, fish obviously quite well. And it's also interesting as a defensive thing because they can still the river. So you have to basically come at them from the land. Otherwise it's, not going to work for you well at all imagine like you're trying to take a boat through a river and then all of a sudden the current becomes so strong that you get dashed upon the rocks or something like that and so i was looking up some otter facts and there's one about like poop and i'm like i don't want to touch that like i I really don't (laughs) want to deal with that at all um but additionally like they have some of the best breath capacity as well so i was like oh you can make that another really easy one as well is that Folks who are part of the River Clan and have these relics, they can basically breathe underwater and, mm-hmm. and swim really well underwater as well. Does that mean that they have societies that live underwater partially? Not underwater. Um, I was thinking that it was going to be like, hey, in order for you to get to these places, you're going to have to go underwater for a portion of it, right? Oh, so okay. imagine that you're in a swamp that's nearby a river, right? And then it's like, the the trees are far too thick to traverse. They're literally like mangrove trees and stuff like that. But the otters know the way underneath and through the root system of these trees. And only people who can, you know, kind of breathe for water that long and know the route through it are able to mm-hmm. actually get to these places where their communities happen to be. And I'm thinking like real like Cajun or Bayou style of like, houses that are built like slightly above the water and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, they're fun. They are playful. They're, they're not necessarily mischievous, but they're rowdy types, you know, and and that's what I've got so far. Mm -hmm. With the Druid who used to kind of rule over them or aid them in some way. Do you picture that Druid having like a, a romp of otters at his or her disposal? See, I'm I'm not so sure about that. I feel like because mm. they come in like romps, they come in like collectives. I think that they would have to have something like that. But I, I think that if anything, it might be a family of druids or or at least uh, a pair yeah. of druids, like a like two two spouses or something like that. I think would be mm. kind of interesting, or or even like a parent and child. I think that might be an interesting thing as well. Yeah. Um, but I didn't think about that do, previously. Do otters do these do these creatures build things? Um, I, I'm not really sure if if otters do. And frankly, mm. I don't necessarily see them as like the industrious types mm-hmm. necessarily. I, I feel like if anything, they're more interested in finding a really good spot and then building upon it. That's what I mean. Like, are they builders like homestead types? 
oh yeah, no, they, they care very much about their community. Okay. And to them, it's, it's more like, oh, is it easy to defend? Can mm-hmm. we protect one another? You know, like the kind of idea that I gave before about going through the roots of the mangrove trees, like that's the kind of thing that they're looking for. And, you know, like that's like their community. And then they have little outposts that go from there that are perhaps, you know, like more front facing, like, hey, this is our outpost, you know, but like if you ever want to get in good with an otter community, then you have this instead, you know, that kind of thing. So I can definitely visualize um, a city or a place that's kind of um, built on a variety of rivers and not swampy, but like almost Venetian sort of landscape but but under Mm -hmm. these giant trees that grow in the water or whatever and so navigating that requires you to be on a boat and go through these kind of treacherous paths to find this what would you say like glaive of of you know these giant mangrove trees that are the the, there's like structures built around them not to get too close to the the treehouse types of your other Mm -hmm. ones but but i can see that being more on the water you know yeah yeah do you do y'all know what mangrove trees look like, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause I, I feel like that's very important to the aesthetic where they're like they're very root-based and they're very water-based right. as well. So and I can see them being gigantic too, so that those yeah. roots are like usable as bridges and things like that, and going under them, which would be kind of- Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I love the aesthetic and I also one thing that's revealing itself as we continue on is that the ocean seems to be less of a thing currently. And I really Mm -hmm. like that. And I'm very curious to see if Daniel kind of maintains something like that as we continue forward. But I suppose we should finish up with my faction first. If you have any more questions or there's anything that we need to expand upon here, that kind of thing. I am like 99% sure I know the answer to this, but I assume that you're talking about the cute little river otters, not the giant otters that look horrifying. Oh, why not both? You know, like <laughs> I, I think that there is going to be different kinds and I think yeah. that that's okay because that that's the thing, right? River otters, while cute, are also carnivores, right? They're going mm-hmm. to fuck shit up. And, you know, like, I think that's, I've kind of expressed that in the way that they're incredibly defensive and incredibly, you know, like, territorial in that way. Like, when I say that the rivers are theirs, I mean, the rivers are fucking theirs, man. Like, you're not allowed to, like, traverse the river without their blessing or go ahead, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I mostly meant appearance wise, because the South American giant otters are like, they're not, they're not what you expect when you think of an otter. (laughs) I don't think I know that one. Oh. Hold on, hold on. I, I got to Google this live on air. I mean, that just looks like an otter to me. It's just like a slightly less cute otter. Mm-hmm. I mean, sh- yeah, they're, they're more Basically like... less cute. Look at their eyes, though. Oh, my God. Horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> they, they've got like walrus eyes. Like bit, plesiosaurs. Right? Furry plesiosaurs. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know, is it plesiosaur, whatever it is? Well, yeah, well, remember, right? Like, our people aren't otter people. This isn't Redwall. You oh, know I know, I, mean? I know. Like, yeah, I know. so it's not like they're gonna be like, yeah, they have giant fish eyes and they look kind of like <laughs> like I'm. That's not really what I'm considering. Yeah, you know? yeah, but but you know, why not both? You know, why not be like, hey, you've got like the big gross ones and the small communal <laughs> ones too. You know, God, look at their jaws open. Ooh. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> yeah, I, I only know about them because uh, in Planet Zoo, there oh, oh, are of course, yeah, there are giant otters in the game, and I remember really excited when I first got the game because I was like, oh, otters are great, and then I went to click on them and I was like, oh no, Ooh. this isn't the kind <laughs> of otter. <laughs> yeah. But they did add uh, Asian small clawed otters to the game. Those are very cute. yeah. Uh, Courtney, Courtney, in another game that you wouldn't expect her to have 600 hours in, but she does. <laughs> it's a very cute game. Yeah, I, I'm not judging you. I've got I've got terrible hours in some of mine. You know what I mean? So what are the comp- composite parts that are used here? Are there any particular mm-hmm. iconic part, like the feather in her case? So uh, the furs, for sure, you know, uh, just because that's easy to integrate into dress and into like a bunch of things. You've got otter claws and, in fact, otter jaws as well. All of that stuff can work for me. Um, but I'm, I'm going to try and keep it to like three parts. And I think I'm going to stick with that is fur, jaw, and claw. Okay. 
because again, I don't want to do otter shit. I just don't want to do. What about? Um, I could also see um, strangely fragments of things. Well, because they're not they're not beavers, but you know what I mean, like fragments of things that they've <laughs> constructed, having some magical resonance. Uh-huh. But I mean, I'm, they're not really known for damming, though, right? No, they they do use tools though, which I think okay. is something that that would be cool. Like yeah. tools that they have used in the past, or that maybe not the animals, but that like have carried the magic in some way. I mean, remember they're also very simplistic tools as well, because it's like I need a rock to bash open this clam, you know, like that yeah. kind of thing. Or it could be that the druids had used, and that's why the the oh, items okay. carry them. So, because what they're trying to call back to is like these are all physical representations of the druids' power, mm-hmm. and so like the familiar right. is one aspect of that. So we also have to think. What are things the druids used, which would be cool in your case, because it's like physical tools or right. maybe pieces yeah. of the homestead of their original homestead. Yeah, that's cool. Mm. And actually, yeah. I guess along the same lines, like crows are known for using those simplistic kinds of tools too, just like sticks to like open stuff yeah. up or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I could see yeah. something similar um, with the crows. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, I can see it as like a weapon that they use or or so actually, yeah, if you're talking about a stick, Courtney, I'm imagining your crow people having like walking sticks that are deceptively mm-hmm. simple, but are actually like really, you know, adept at kind of doing something tricksy, you know, like that. Yeah. Kind of thing. And they could use them to like vault over stuff, too. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. Again, you've created scouts without creating scouts. I like that's, <laughs> that's kind of how it's gone. Um, she has migratory uh, groups. <laughs> she has. <laughs> yeah oh actually i i could imagine using like shellfish as like a kind of thing as well for the mm-hmm. otter people i mean because it's like while you know they're they're not using them as tools necessarily i feel like the people who use them could be like oh these are actually like razor sharp right especially in a fantastical world where you can have you know clams and other shellfish that have magical shell properties and stuff like that like why not go with like, yeah, we've got axe blades that are actually just oyster shells or something like that. Or, uh, you know, like Courtney, you grew up on Cape Cod with me. So, uh, you know, have you ever known anyone who's like cut themselves open on shellfish before? Oh, yeah. I, sure is, yeah it's, they're bad. sharp as fuck, man. Yeah. There's a question that um, half of you is going to hate. If, if someone <laughs> oh, were running God. like a campaign with this setting um, and they wanted to have the standard fantasy races, how would we align like so far community people with them? Hmm. I would say human uh, because we, other than human, obviously. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yours give me like a gnome vibe almost. I would say human for sure. I don't know what yours um, would be, Courtney, though. Um, yeah, I feel like kind of wood elfy. Oh, yeah, wood elves, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so funny because I also imagine my folks as being elven as well. In some I way. could be elven. I could do that too, yeah. like a forest elf type. Yeah. yeah. Maybe they're all elves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're just making different types just of elves. All different kinds of elves. Yeah. You know? Which actually could work for mine too. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of yours, Daniel, uh, why don't we get into it and why don't you explain to us what you're talking about here? Um, so I'm, I'm, when you first mentioned arc druids, like I was struck by the classic image of the stag's antlers, um, you know, and the, mm. the skull of the stag that's often oh, like, yeah. you know, associated with these kind of natural death magic. So, um, I also had a female druid, a female druid who had perhaps a small circle of druids with her and they're more of a cult and her animal is, is a stag, obviously. Um, but the, this was kind of like a religious group who their purpose was to guard the doorway between this realm and beyond the veil like where the, mm. you know, where the rain leads. Mm. Um, like that was their whole religious sort of uh, cult of mysteries. And I imagined um, with the Archdruid gone, there are these clerics who carry the, the religion um, among these really small sects of people who do not have a, a physical location, like they don't have a persistent place at all. These are truly sure. the scout ones. And mm-hmm. they're these groups of people who live together kind of like on the road and in secret with, with a cleric. Um, their whole purpose is they serve as almost like um, people who are trained to go into the other side because they mm-hmm. know the religion and try to retrieve the souls of people who are gone to put them back into uh, 
the bodies of the dead and restore them. Sure. Um, but what what's dark about them is I imagine them having a power over the dead, such that if they possess the pieces of the archdruids, you know, antlers, right, or the the bones and everything, that they collect in dolmens um, groups of dead because they're storing them so that they can retrieve the souls and restore them for mm-hmm. people. So they actually have like groups of undead at their disposal that they don't necessarily use as like armies or to attack with, but they keep them in these mm-hmm. dolmens, like these stone structures. Um, and then the other thing I imagine too is the possession of the antler bits attracts these white stags that live in the storms, like the living ones. Um, and you can ride them and that's how you get to the other side. But on the yeah. other side, the white stags are undead. Like they're skeletal and their eyes are red mm. and everything. Ooh. Once you're on the other side. That's right. Gotcha. Um, so I had this duality with it where sure. you've got a group of rebel-y type scouts that are led by these clerics who collect the bones so they can attract the stags to go into the other side, retrieve souls, and mm-hmm. they keep throngs of dead with them. That's so interesting. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. really cool. So what, so your, your idea was that the people who had the relics of the familiar is their ability to travel and traverse the, the land of the dead and the ability to create zombie-like undead uh, creatures, basically? Uh, no, because we, well, yes, but then uh, we established <laughs> there are people who come back to the life that are zombies, right. basically. So they collect them. Because they're holding them in abeyance for if someone needs, like if it's a loved one, they'll then go gotcha. into the other world, get the soul, and put it in that body to bring them back gotcha. for real. Yeah. Mm. D- Daniel, I have to go on this tangent for a bit because I love this idea so, so much. Like it's it's such a cool thing. And I think the one thing that is really striking to me, and I'm not sure if you knew this, but stags and like horned creatures in general often stood for virility in like Celtic mythology and stuff like that. They sure do. Yeah. So, so when you're saying all of this, it's like, Oh, they're, you know, they're clerics. They're able to bring life into the existence and stuff like that. Or like, they're able to traverse those things. I can't help of them as like either masking themselves as midwives or like being the type of like medicinal or like healer type as a kind of mask to what they actually are, because it's like, Hey, listen, we're going to have this expertise in this knowledge, but people aren't going to necessarily like what we actually do. And yeah. so we're going to provide this service to be like, no, we're, we're healers. And they are to an extent because, you know, they're dealing with the duality of life and death. And I just can't help but get that image. Again, they're horned creatures. They're all about virility and they're all about life. And so, yeah, I, that's just where my tangent is going, but I love the idea that you've got going on right now. And I do like the idea of, of perhaps like they infiltrate other societies as like caregivers or maybe because they're looking for that boundary between life and death. Um, exactly. Maybe maybe yeah. some groups are okay with them, but some are afraid of them. Like I just sort of ima- I don't yeah. imagine them. They'll probably live for some time among these other people, but they have their own like little group that's not, you know, it's not permanent. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I actually played a Pathfinder character who aligns very much with this. Like he had like a deerskin cloak and stuff and he was an oracle in Pathfinder, very like shamanistic in his vibe mm. and was also a healer slash like fertility specialist, I guess you could say, mm. um, sort of acted as a midwife or the male version of a midwife. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's true. Mm. Whatever happened to that character, Courtney? <laughs> I, I i say that knowing full well what happens to that mm-hmm. character it is grim to say mm-hmm. the least but um yeah no i i i kind of get that vibe that you're going for courtney uh, uh like mm-hmm. maybe slightly less you know uh charismatic though i i think that mm-hmm. with daniel i feel like they're you can you can tell me otherwise like i see them as kind of like no nonsense daniel do you agree with that or no um, I mean, yeah, I could see that they're not necessarily friendly. I could see like kind of like a stern sort of, um, what do you call it? Uh, get the job done mm-hmm. sort of characters. And I can imagine like the clerics are somewhat cold because they have a very strict mission to follow. But mm-hmm. I could also see the individual ones who travel to the other realm. They've got to be like 
risk takers and they've got to be mm-hmm. maybe they're very oftentimes young because not many are willing to take the risk to go to the other side and find a way back mm-hmm. you've got to be you've got to be virile and strong to survive through the storm because you're going to be waiting on the other side for when you can come back oh. so i can see those groups like they're raising younger people to serve them to do this you know mm-hmm. daniel that is that is so great and it also gives a natural a like explanation as to why the older ones who have survived have become as dour and as like kind of no nonsense as they are. It's because they've seen so many confident young people never come back from the borderline of death and life. And so they've just kind of grown jaded as a result or something like that. You know what I mean? Like the older you get, the more friends you see who never come back from their mission in some way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then like, yeah, I wonder if they, as a group, as a religion, have any rules about, like, rescuing those lost people? Like, is it something where once somebody is lost, it's up to them to come back on their own? Or do people Ooh. actively try to seek those lost stags out? I had a thought that um, like, it's not normal to be able to bring someone back to life. Right. right. Like, it's, it's, it should not be easy to retrieve the soul and make the zombified body work again. So I'm yeah. imagining, imagining um, you go to these people and perhaps there's some sort of petition or process that's difficult to succeed at. But once you get their permission to do this, then they send the people who know. Maybe you have to go with them. I don't know. And you go to the other side. And that's where it becomes oh. a mission to bring the soul back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, Daniel, you said that the white stag were on the other side, correct? They were like skeletal. Yeah, they kind of emerge. And then they're like fleshy when they emerge, yeah. Right, okay. What if those were your clerics who never came back? And so their symbol is instead like, hey, we're here as like a symbol of endurance or a symbol of like both an omen as like a warning and also like, hey, you should be slightly comforted or something like that. Yeah, because I'm sure that it's like it's like a good and bad thing. Like, oh, it's hope, right? But it's also scary. Yeah. They're from the other side, mm-hmm. right? And and they they're literally like the souls of the people who have done this job before. You know, like that kind of thing. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dan, that's cool. That's cool. Right. What I think is really interesting is that the three of us have all kind of played around with this idea of like death being in part of, like. Mine slightly more metaphorically, considering it's like Charon and the ferryman and stuff like that. And I see that very much ingrained in the culture that I've created. But otherwise, like death is very much all over the kind of cultures that we've created. And I really love that, honestly. Like, I think that's such a cool thing that we've got here so far. Yeah, I feel like mine is the least death oriented, but I could also see that tying in with like the bardic nature of the crows and Mm -hmm. Um, sharing stories of people who have been lost and so on mm. or carrying on their traditions after they're gone. Oh, I, I meant like both like physically and like metaphorically, right? Like, uh, you know, the, a murder of crows, for example, or, ah, I gotcha. you know, like carrion crows and then yeah. mine are rivermen because they're otter and they live on the river. And then Daniel is just explicitly about the kind of like death connection that they have there. Well, also, choosing an animal that is like kind of the opposite, which I think is a really fascinating duality. That you've, yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. I always like, I always like the gods who are like gods of death, but really they're gods of death and life. Like I always like the consolation because it's both yeah. sides. And I, yeah. often, I, in our own, in our own system, the OSR plus like the God of death is this stag headed life bearer sort of thing. So it makes yeah. sense to be, you know? Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And um, I was also wondering, since we're, we're trying to like tie the powers into the, weather to an extent and oh yeah i could absolutely see your druid's power having been like the life power and that's why the dead come back the way they do in the first place because her weather patterns their weather patterns uh their rain is what gives the dead life yeah you're right that's that's why they're able to do this because exactly what you said that makes sense Mm-hmm. I also I also like to uh, this is why I was asking earlier about the animals and their relationship to the other side, because I would be neat if all the animals work similarly. Like I could see the ravens live in the real world. But when you use their power, it's like you're calling the other side's power over. Uh, yeah. You know, so yeah. I wonder if there's like bone ravens on the other side or bone otters mm-hmm. on the other side, you know, <laughs> that are yeah. that are sentient. But when you go to the other side, they're like undeadish, uh, but not mm-hmm. evil, just like, you know, skeletal and spooky, which would be kind of I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So, so is that kind of the thing that we're baking into this idea is that whenever you use magic, you're using magic that is both undead, like inherently undead and kind of totemic? Yeah, I think so. I think that makes perfect sense, given that like the druids are sort of in limbo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're they're in this hole and they're petrified or crystallized or something. Yeah. They're not really dead, but they're also not alive. Oh, I, so right. the way that I'm kind of visualizing this now is that you're in the real world, right? You're you're in the physical manifestation of the world, and you see someone using magic, and you see them like wave their hand, and then the winds blow, right? But then if you had an ability to see into the spirit world, you'd see that they're actually congregating a flock of crows that are all beating their undead wings yes. together. Mm-hmm. You know, like that kind of thing. I so, love it. Yeah. yeah. So so that's that's exactly what, you know, my headcanon is now, is that you mm-hmm. can see into both realms at once, effectively. And the other realms, mm-hmm. like the ash and bone landscape, that's a duality of this one, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. of course, right, like there's also this idea that when you evoke that kind of landscape from the physical realm, you're also imbuing them with life in some way. So like there's a color right. that you're adding to that ashen gray landscape through the use of your magic in that way. Maybe mm-hmm. the shades are the only things that have color on the other side, the, the lost souls there, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And I'm going like full Mesoamerican, like strong striking colors when it comes to that kind of thing, you know, like, pinks and yellows and greens and stuff so it's like very vivid when you're evoking these colors mm-hmm. although i would imagine that's for my folk and not necessarily for your bone white stag daniel <laughs> yeah i imagine the the white stags when they come across are white because it just symbolizes this purity and, and life force you right. know but then when they're on the other side you're clearly they are what they are yes so uh, i want to go back to one more thing which is I'm noticing that all of the all of the communities and kind of groups that we've created thus far, again, are not ocean based, are not near the waters that are like seas and tides and stuff like that. And I can't help but feel like that's intentional. Like it's not like no one here like decided to do that. But I'm just imagining our world is very much based on the inland, right? Like so. How do y'all feel about that? Like, I- I'm kind of interested in in taking it in that kind of direction. Yeah, it's funny because um, last episode, kind of while we were creating the world still, when it was in its early stages, I was wondering at one point, like, oh, is this just like an ocean world with occasional islands here and there mm-hmm. um, because of the importance of water and everything and, you know, the massive hole in the earth. Um, but I do like the idea of it being this more like inland woodland kind of vibe and like we also talked about the oceans potentially being dangerous because of the properties that the water has been imbued with and so maybe that's why we're going to be focusing more on inland stuff i think that makes a lot of sense like all the communities that we've talked about thus far they're like you need to stay away from the ocean because they're insanely dangerous you know like that's where like the storms are at their worst. And yes, mm-hmm. the the kind of maw that is the end of the world is in the ocean itself as well. No, I like that. I think um, I was picturing with a location of mine being like far out in a dry outland. So this fits in totally fine. Mm-hmm. Like where their, their dolmens are or whatever. Um, but yeah. yeah, if everything else is inland, that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't want to get too... Uh close to the diesel setting that we did oh uh, um earth of a thousand engines um because that one that one is like they're the oceans are poison though right and fuck yeah them. one of my tenets for that world was yeah. that the oceans are like dangerous in some way yeah but i think we can keep this one more nebulous and maybe it's not even as overtly dangerous but it's just safer to stay in them so why bother right. going to the oceans especially if it's like has that connotation of being associated with uh the whole well, it's, it's not yeah. that the oceans are radioactive and poisoned like they were. Right. Right. Just that yeah. there are typhoons, you know, yeah. and storms. Yeah. And it's not a good thing because on land, at least you can take cover, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't know why I also have this idea that it's like deeply Americana. 
I think it's mostly the influence of my faction that I've kind of created this idea that like there's big rivers and there's big steamboats and, you know, like there's rafts all along the river. And obviously that's more mine and whatnot. But I, I'm imagining like mix that with a bit of like Celtic mythology and like Celtic glades and stuff like that to throw in like Daniel's kind of white stag. And that is the vibe that I'm getting is that the majority of the setting is like forests, rivers, and, you know, like, uh, Daniel, you said blasted landscapes of ash and bone. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So like, I imagine that, you know, like maybe we're at a port where you don't really need to go to the oceans to, to explore all that much, you know, maybe we can keep the scope of it to an inland type of situation, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> so my next question, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. What do we need to know next about the setting that we've created thus far? Well, we don't have a conflict really, or an antagonist. Sure. I, I was thinking the exact same thing. So do we, what if we think about bringing um, different kind of events that are occurring and see if we can stick mm-hmm. them together into one larger conflict sure see that's kind of what i had in mind daniel is that we would do like each of us bring a conflict mm-hmm. you know whether it be a villain or a war or a missing object or something that's causing strife within the world itself and we see how we can connect them all together into this living world mm-hmm. yeah yeah a conflict totally works cool all right so yeah i guess that's gonna do it for this episode uh, thank you again for listening. Thank you again for getting through this. And remember, if you want us to build your world, you can always go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com, where you can click the link, follow some instructions, and within a reasonable amount of time, we'll be building your world. If you want to follow us on social media, we're over on YouTube, where you can click the like and subscribe and the bell buttons all you want, as many times as you want, right? Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Let's World Build. And if you want to talk to us more directly, you can go to our Discord. And of course, if you're feeling particularly generous, you can always go to our Patreon and donate to us there. Make sure that you keep the podcast afloat or just say thanks for all the podcasting goodness that we've given you over the years. And with all of that out the way, that's going to do it for this episode of World Build with us. Remember that we love you very much and we're going to get through this together. Until next week. 